Well, this afternoon we are continuing our series on Christology and looking in particular at uh, the doctrine of the Incarnation. And what I've done is uh, provided for you on page one of your handouts an excerpt from our doctrinal statement, which is called What We Teach. And uh, it's, it's our elders subscribe to this document without reservation, but it's, it's very rich, and I've taken the liberty of highlighting some of the, it's all salient, it's all important, but I've taken the uh, liberty of highlighting and bolding uh, some of the language that deals with some of the important subjects that I'm, I will be talking about today. So to that end, uh, this section on God the Son, we've dealt with some of this earlier when we dealt with the deity, the eternality, the preexistence of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and what it means that he was the first begotten, the only begotten, and the angel of the Lord. We've, we've dealt with that, not in its fullness by any stretch, but at least in, a, in an introductory fashion in, in previous times. But when we come to the third paragraph in this section on God the Son, we teach that in the incarnation, defined as God becoming man, Christ, and this is very important, it's all important, but the particularly important, surrendered only the prerogatives of deity, but nothing of the divine essence. I've always said that, that Jesus forewent the independent exercise of his divine prerogatives. He did exercise divine prerogatives at times, but not in an autonomous fashion. He always exercised those. He, he did miracles. He exercised a degree of omniscience at various points in time. He, he knew what people were thinking. So at, at various points in time, the, the transfiguration, for instance, there's any number of instances where we see the deity of Christ becoming manifest. But for the most part, uh, the Lord Jesus subordinated his exercise of, well, he always subordinated his exercise of his divine prerogatives in perfect obedience to the Father in, in fulfillment of what his mission was. But he, he, he did not surrender any of the prerogatives, but, and, um, but uh, or surrendered the prerogatives, but nothing of the divine essence. Uh, so at no point uh, did he surrender anything of that nature. In his incarnation, the eternally existing second person of the Trinity, and we dealt with that aspect earlier with the preexistence, the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He accepted all of the essential characteristics of humanity and so became the God-man. And the texts that are referenced here, of course, Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, etc. And Colossians 2.9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We teach that Jesus Christ represents humanity and deity in indivisible oneness. Now, we say these things, and we subscribe to them because they're true, because the Scripture teaches us, but the, it's, it's mind-boggling that this could be the case, how this can happen. It's truly an amazing reality. We teach that our Lord Jesus was virgin-born, and I, Lord willing, will be focusing on the virgin birth next time, uh, as well as some other topics along the way, and why that's important. If someone were to ask you, why is it essential that, that we understand the virgin birth, then you, we should be able to answer that question. That God was incarnate, and the purpose, and this is very critical, the purpose, and whoever wrote the what we teach must have been a, a 
a pastor because there's alliteration here. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but to reveal, to redeem, and to rule. So three R's. That makes it easy for us to remember. To reveal God, that would be his prophetic ministry, prophet, priest, and king, or the offices of Christ. To redeem men, that would be his uh, priestly office. And again, we'll expand on this in more detail. And to rule over God's kingdom, that would be king. So three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. We teach that in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, and this is actually very similar to the third, to the third paragraph up above, the second person of the Trinity laid aside his right to the full prerogatives of coexistence with God and took on an existence appropriate to a servant. And, of course, you're thinking of Philippians 2 because that's where Paul addresses the humility of Christ. There are two states of Christ, as the theologians describe him, his humiliation and his exaltation. His humiliation was his taking on human flesh and that in a low estate and suffering the, in a world of sin and ultimately dying on a cross on our behalf, being buried in that for a, a, and suffering death for a, a short period of time. But then he was exalted, of course, in the resurrection and the ascension and in his present session in heaven. But uh, he, he took on an existence appropriate to a servant while never divesting himself of his divine attributes. Now, those paragraphs are just absolutely chock full of implications. There, there are, and we'll try to expand on that in the amount of time that we have. But this is a very robust definition of uh, what it means to be uh, God incarnate and the, the implications of that. But we say these things, and I think J.I. Packer made a, a really good observation when he, he deals with the humanity of Christ, and Bruce Ware wrote a book some years ago that is very helpful about Jesus and his humanity, we often don't think, uh, in my opinion, very often of what it means that Jesus was fully man. At least I found uh, the, the meditation on that aspect of his being to be very helpful. But the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Here's, here's God Almighty in this, in this condition needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And I found that to be true. The more I, I, I contemplate these things, they, these, these wonderful confessional statements roll easily off my lips, but I'm not sure that they penetrate my heart as, as deeply as they should. And they, hopefully that's something that we can rectify as we go along. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. That's an understatement. It really is that God himself would take on this. Well, page two, there are countless passages of Scripture that we could look at in terms of the Incarnation of Christ, but understand that, that we need to grasp why did Jesus take on human flesh? And it all begins in Genesis 3 with the introduction of sin into God's creation. And there was a curse that was pronounced on man, and then there was a curse that was pronounced on the serpent, the devil, Satan himself. And in Genesis 3, we have what often theologians refer to as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. And this is spoken to Satan, to, to the serpent. I will put enmity between you, this is the Lord Almighty speaking to the serpent, and the woman, so there's enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So for this enmity to exist, there had to be progeny from the woman, which required that God be incarnate for this to take place, because 
the what happens is this conflict ultimately results in a bruising on the head, which is fatal to the seed of the serpent, and a bruising on the heel, which would be great suffering indeed for the seed of the woman. And so even as early as Genesis 3.15, God gives us the reason for the incarnation. And he expands on that throughout the Old Testament and amplifies it, of course, in the New Testament. But the, the, it's interesting, I didn't reference this in your notes, but in Isaiah 9.6, maybe you've never thought about the way in which the language is given, but unto us a child is born, a son is given. Do you see the distinction between those two? A child is born, a son is given. The son was not born. The son has always existed. The son is eternal, preexistent, always been the son, eternal sonship. We dealt with that last time. But a child is born. And here is God himself taking on human flesh in the incarnation. In Galatians 4, some years ago on Christmas Eve, I actually gave a message. I think it's a wonderful Christmas text in Galatians 4, 4. This is the reason for Christmas. This is, this is what we should be thinking about when we celebrate the Advent, when the fullness of time came, and God's perfect timing, his, his timing that had been determined from all eternity, that, that minute, that second, that instant when God had ordained, the Father had ordained, and the Son had, had taken upon himself in, in perfect submission to the Father, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, and here's the seed of the woman coming into existence, coming into taking on human flesh, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And you remember the three R's, right? To reveal God. If you've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. And uh, to redeem a lost humanity and to rule. And all of those are the reasons for the incarnation. Verse 18 of John, or pardon me, now I'm into John 1. This is a classic text of, um, of the incarnation. This is in John's prologue, the opening verses of the gospel. And again, very, very laden, not only with truth, but, but the implications are enormous. And the word, this eternally existent word, the divine word, became flesh. This is the incarnation and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. God tabernacled among us. And you, you know from the Old Testament there, the, the tabernacle was where God would manifest his presence from time to time. That's where people came to meet God. That's where God revealed himself. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, which speaks of the intimate relationship that has existed and always will exist between the Father and the Son. This, this two persons in the Godhead in, in absolute intimate fellowship with each other, a perfect fellowship. He, the Son, the, the eternal Word, the Word became flesh, has explained God, has explained him. And the word literally is the word from which we would get the modern-day word exegesis. If you, our pastor will exegete a passage, he will unfold it to you, he will explain it to you, he will make it evident to you. And that's the implication of this word when John tells us that he has explained him, that Jesus has exegeted God. Jesus has revealed to us what God is. 
Philippians 2, this wonderful passage that deals both with the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I bolded the section dealing with the humiliation of Christ because that's what the incarnation is all about, the the, the humiliation of Christ. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This this expression, emptied himself, has nothing to do with sacrificing or abdicating any divine uh, essence whatsoever. It had to do with his taking on this subordinate role uh, in, in in the incarnation, assuming flesh, God delimiting himself in, in a form by taking on human flesh, his human nature. First time in all eternity that God had taken on human flesh. And he remains in human flesh. The Son today is human flesh as well as God. That, that didn't change in the ascension. Today we have the God-man. And that will always be the case. We have an ascended, glorified God-man. But he took on for all eternity humanity and was always divine at the same time. And if you can wrap your minds around that, then great. I can't. I can't really completely understand that. But it's true, and, and that's why Paul says on page 3 in 1 Timothy 3, great is the mystery of godliness. And it is a mystery. This is a divine mystery. If someone can fully explain this to you, then they really, I think, are probably sort of skating along the surface to, to think that God himself, the infinite, eternal God, would take on human flesh, that God would do all of that for us is something that, that we'll never really understand on this side of heaven. I, we really can't grasp the implications of that. Uh, that well, we, we grasp the implications, but to fully comprehend it is beyond our ability, I think. But what do we mean by the incarnation? And there's, I think, a very good description about the incarnation that's given here, and it has to do with being enfleshed. Uh, incarnation, uh, carne, flesh, body. Uh, and there's a number of expressions in the, in the scriptures that talk about Jesus coming in the flesh, being sent in the flesh, appearing in the flesh, suffering in the flesh, dying in the flesh, abolishing uh, in the flesh the enmity, which is really the, the essence of what took place in Genesis 3.15. That's exactly what was taking place. And made reconciliation in the flesh. All of God's redemptive work required the incarnation. It could not have happened without the incarnation. And we'll talk about why that is. But every single thing that we just mentioned is absolutely an indispensable aspect of the incarnation. It's not, it's not optional. The Trinity, the second person of the Trinity became a man, assumed human flesh at a point in a time without ceasing to be God. And so you have these different observations, two distinct natures. We have one person, Jesus, one person, but two distinct natures. His divine nature and his human nature, united in one person. Imagine that. It's true. Divine nature and human nature united in one person the God-man. And he did not cease to be the Word at any point. Uh, The Word veiled, hid, and voluntarily restricted the use of certain divine powers, but God cannot cease to be God. 
When the Word became flesh, He became flesh forever. I don't know if you've thought about that, but that's true. And after the resurrection, after the ascension, Jesus did not divest Himself of flesh. He is a man even now at the right hand of God the Father. He's also God. He will always be the God-man. That's the historic profession of the faith. That, that's literally, we'll look at the, at the Westminster Catechism. We'll look at a variety of confessions. This is the historic understanding of, of the church. And so we might envision Jesus saying, I am now what I always was, God. I am now what I once was not, man. I am now and forever will be both the God-man. So as we look at top of page four, the unfolding of the redemptive purpose of God. We, this is, it, I, we want to emphasize why it is that the incarnation had to happen. And it begins, as we mentioned earlier, with uh, Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is simply a proclamation of a decision that was made, an undertaking that was made in all eternity past. This was not something that happened spontaneously. This was a decision, a, an undertaking of the Father and the Son in eternity past that the Father would redeem his elect because it pleased him that he would set his saving love upon the elect. That decision was made in eternity past, entirely motivated by the love of God, of his own prerogative. And the Son, as we saw last week when we talked about this, the Son undertook this initiative in perfect submission to the Father, and the Holy Spirit brings this to pass by, bring, by giving us a new heart. So it was the Father's decree that he saved the elect. It was the, it was the Son's initiative in taking on human flesh that he might offer himself as a sacrifice for sin and as one who would live a perfect life. Both of those are indispensable. We've talked, when we went through earlier uh, the doctrines of grace, at some point we talked about double imputation. And, and double imputation is the two-sided aspect of what took place so that we could be right with God. This is the imputation of our sin to our substitute. It is also the imputation of this, our substitute's perfect obedience to us. So the, one is called the active obedience, one's called the passive obedience. The passive obedience is the son taking on himself the, the guilt and suffering the wrath of those who were given to him by the Father and dying on their behalf, suffering as only God could to save those whom the Father had given to him. It is, it's expiatory. It is it's propitiation. This is the wrath of God being meted out without compromise upon a substitute in our behalf. The active obedience is also indispensable, and that's the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as a man living perfectly, which is the only life that has ever been lived and ever will be lived in perfect obedience to the, to the law of God. And that righteousness is indispensable to us being accepted before the Father as righteous, and that righteousness is imputed to us. And so both of those require his humanity. We don't often think about that, but for us to be called sons of God, we have to be, number one, our guilt has to be dealt with, and we have to have righteousness. We can't just simply be a clean slate. We have to be righteous to be God's children. And all of that was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity in perfect submission to a decision that had been undertaken in eternity past by the Father. That's really what is being said here in these notes. But this promise in Genesis 3.15 about the seed of the woman 
is the first announcement in the scriptures of this work of substitution, this victory that would be won by Jesus, the seed of the woman. And to be a seed of the woman requires humanity. It requires that God take on human flesh. And that's amplified in a number of ways. This seed of the woman would be further detailed as the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22. They would come out of Jacob, in Numbers 24, uh, that he would be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. And so all of these require a body. To be a priest requires a body. And when Jesus was priest, he literally offered himself as the sacrifice, unlike any other priest that has ever existed, that the priest would, or, would offer up a substitution, an animal. But our high priest offered up himself, his own body, in our place to expiate the wrath of God. And so you have the priest, it requires a body, not only to be a priest, but to make the sacrifice. And it's just an amazing thing the more we think about all of this. And so these promises, I mean, of the third paragraph, all of this requires and affirms that Jesus Christ be a true man in the fullest sense of the word. And he was, and he is. He is now just as he always was. But it's identified a particular tribe and a a family and a nation, very specific, and the details become more and more concrete. So if you're working with a a friend, especially a Jewish friend, and they're not sure where does Jesus appear in the Old Testament, you should be able to start with Genesis 3, and you should be able to take them through the Old Testament prophecies and show them how it gets more and more detailed, and literally the, the, of the seed of David, and so on. But we'll go back to Abraham, and go back to, to, uh, to, to Isaac, and, and go back to Jacob, uh, and, and uh, Moses, uh, a prophet in the, likely, in the uh, similitude of, uh, of Moses, uh, the seed of David, etc., all of this. Uh, and you should be able to walk them through. There's... there's I think 200, if I'm not mistaken, uh, prophecies in the Old Testament in various degrees of detail about the, the coming and the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of it required that he take on humanity. And so all of these two things, but he also required there be God because no mere man could do what Jesus did. A man could not satisfy the wrath of God. And we'll unpack that in a moment. That's why hell is eternal. Because hell is the outworking of the wrath of God upon those who are outside of Christ. And the reason it's eternal, and without any lessening of its intensity, which is a horrific thought, but it's absolutely true for all eternity, is because a mere human being cannot fully expiate the unmitigated wrath of God. It never gets better. It never diminishes. Only Jesus could do what was required to satisfy in time what is required of eternity for those outside of Christ. That's what he did for us. The fact that in time, in a matter of hours, he literally did what no human being could ever do in an eternity of time. And again, that's why hell is eternal, and that's why hell is horrific. That's why we proclaim the gospel. Because heaven is forever and because hell is forever. And someone outside of Christ will never be able to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. It will always be poured out in an unmitigated fashion. Eternal conscious torment. Those are some of the the implications of the incarnation. And it it took 
uh, top of page five, a number of centuries for these details, all of these things that were written on the first page, what we teach, those have been worked out over time. Uh, people would, would go through various um, issues. We, we talked about Arianism last time. Uh, Arius uh, would affirm the pre-existence of Christ, but not the eternality of Christ. And you understand those are different concepts. Pre-existence, Arius could affirm because he said that Jesus was a created being. Well, he would have said he existed before the incarnation because he was created before the incarnation, but he had a, a point of inception. And that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. And then you have a, 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 that's what led to the Nicene Creed. We talked about that last time. And then you have another heresy, the docetic heresy. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means literally to, um, to seem or to appear. And the essence of the docetic heresy is that, is that Jesus never really took on full humanity. So Arius was saying that Jesus was a created being, and this docetic heresy said that Jesus never really took on full humanity. It just looked like he did. He had an appearance of it. And that led to the Athanasian Creed. And we'll, that's actually reproduced for you in the, in the notes on page 11. But it took this second paragraph on page 5 I, I mentioned earlier. Only God could sustain the burden of God's wrath. No mere man could do that. And I think we need to just constantly reinforce that in our minds. Why is the incarnation such a precious truth? For many, many reasons, because of the, it's what the testimony of Scripture, but we would not be saved without the incarnation. The salvation of, of God's elect required that God take on a human body. And even now, he has a body as the God-man. So for us, we will be eternally grateful for the incarnation because it's the indispensable reality was the outworking of God's redemptive plan. Well, in the middle of page five, there's a question, and this comes from Mark Jones in his book about Jesus Christ, which is a remarkably helpful book. He asks a question, what are the most shocking words in, in, in all of Scripture? And we could all speculate about what it is that causes our minds to just revolve in, in circles. There's any number of things that, that sort of get to me in that way. But, but he said John 1.14 would be certainly a high candidate of that, where, where we have the scriptures saying that God took on human flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And why is that a remarkable thing? See, again, we, we're Orthodox believers. We, we subscribe to Orthodox Christians, not Greek Orthodox, Roman Orthodox. We're talking about Orthodox confession here. But... but the Jews couldn't subscribe to the fact that God would take on human flesh. In John 10, 33, you have this, this episode where the Jews picked up stones, verse 31 of John 10, to stone Jesus. Someone might tell you, Jesus never claimed to be God. You know that's not true. They haven't written, somebody who says that has not read the Bible. John 8, 58, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood perfectly well what, what he meant by that. That's why they were going to stone him then. For, for blasphemy. But Jesus answered these people who wanted to take his life, and ultimately they would take his life, but that wasn't the time. I showed you, he said, many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. It was incomprehensible to the Jewish critics that God could take on humanity. 
And so when we have the doctrine of the incarnation, that, that was not only revolutionary, that just caused the Jewish minds just to stop still in their tracks. They, they could not even wrap their minds around that. That was totally objectionable to them because they, they, they didn't understand that. But if they'd gone back to the Old Testament, their, their Hebrew scriptures and looked at Genesis 3.15, the seed of a woman would ultimately inflict the lethal head blow upon the seed of the serpent. Then there you have at the very beginning of the Torah a pronouncement that God himself would take on man. There had to be the seed of the woman could not be a fictitious character. It required humanity. And, and the fact that you have the Davidic covenant, the fact that you have the Abrahamic covenant, all of these talking about the fact that, that there would be one who would take on flesh that would be a blessing to all the nations in the world and would reign forever. To reign, not just in a, a mythological or spiritual fashion, but in a physical fashion. But that it was incomprehensible to them. And, and so down at the bottom, this thing, it just, it, it causes us to really, if we understand the incarnation, or if we begin to, to, to deal with this, uh, one, James Usher of Ireland, talks about the, the, the fact that the incarnation was the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, this, he said, when the Son became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. That's a wonderful way to put it. Heaven and earth met and kissed each other. The Dutch Reformed theologian, Heaven, uh, Herman Bavink, it's utterly incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. But he did. He took on human flesh. And he says, this mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. That's true. We really can't fully comprehend how the infinite and eternal unchangeable God, immense, that filling all of the universe could literally take on human flesh and, and, and full human flesh and, and do what he did. Top of page six, uh, the role of the Trinity in the incarnation. Each of the three persons in the Trinity took a, an integral role in the incarnation. It was the Father's purpose Remember in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him, right? Ephesians 1.4. That's the electing purpose of the Father. For that to happen, there had to be a work of redemption, which means that there had to be a sacrifice, which means that guilt had to be expiated. That means that a priest had to make an offering that would be satisfactory to the eternal God. And that required a body, which is where Jesus comes in. He took on human flesh so that he could be that sacrifice, so that he could achieve that righteousness, so that we could have a place in heaven. And Hebrews 10 speaks about a body being prepared for Jesus. Literally, this was an amazing thing, that a body would be prepared for God. But that's what he, it's, it's referencing Psalm 40. A body you have prepared for me. And so the author of Hebrews is talking specifically about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, this taking on a body. And in the context of this passage in Hebrews 10, this taking on of, of humanity was absolutely indispensable for the outworking of this sacrifice. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said that the Father ordained, formed, made fit, and able Christ's human nature to undergo, suffer, and fulfill that for which he was sent into the world. 
Think about the perfect plan, the, 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 the absolutely perfect plan, the very deliberate plan of the Father as a divine architect in laying out what would be required to achieve his saving purpose. And the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ was planned from all eternity and outworked in time. This perfect body, human body for the Lord Jesus Christ, a sinless body prepared for him. On top of page 7, if the Father was responsible as the master architect for designing and preparing the body that the Son would assume, the Holy Spirit, like a master builder, was responsible for the actual formation of the human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary. And here you have these wonderful passages in the Gospels about how the Holy Spirit would come upon the Virgin Mary and a human would be formed in her, in her womb by divine conception, apart from any involvement of, of a man. And it just, so you have the, the divine architect in the person of the Father, and you have the divine, um, the, the master builder, as this allegory goes, or this, uh, this uh, metaphor goes, not an allegory, but a metaphor, the Holy Spirit in actually creating that body, which is exactly what took place. So God created this person in the womb of Mary by divine conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, which has never happened before, will never happen again. It's unique in all of history, perfect fulfillment. We'll talk about this next week, Lord willing. Isaiah 7:14 is a passage that should be coming to your mind. We'll talk about that, that wonderful passage. But then Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born Unto us a son is given. Those are two different things, to be given and to be born. To be born requires that a body be made. To be given, Jesus always was. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that one who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. A child is born, a son is given. That's the, 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 the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is so evident here in this wonderful selection of words doesn't say that, that unto us a child is born and given. It says unto us a child is born and a son is given. And that's exactly what took place. Well, here's where you come in. I want you to be familiar with some of these wonderful confessions. The, the Heidelberg Catechism comes from the Dutch Reformed tradition. And we're going to talk about why the Incarnation was absolutely indispensable. But what I would like you to do is ask questions. And I'm going to read you the answer, and you can follow along. So question 12, ask the question. Since then, God will have his justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves, and that would be someone going to hell, or by another, and that would be by turning to Christ. Question 13. By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. We, we don't qualify. We're not perfect. Question 14. None, 
For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man has committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. Top of page 8, question 15. For one who is very man and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. So now we're going to expand on why the God-man. Question 16. That's a very important question. Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which is sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Question 17. That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. By the way, those are the two aspects when it, when it talks about uh, sustaining the burden of God's wrath. That's his active, his passive obedience in obtaining and restoring to us righteousness in life. That's his active obedience. Those are the two aspects of what is imputed to us. So question 18. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Question 19. From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, that's Genesis 3.15, and afterwards published by the patriarchs and the prophets, and if you look at these references, it goes through a number of the passages that where the, the identity of Christ is, is more and more made specific and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten Son. When it says represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, we understand that sacrifices could never save. The blood, and, blood of bulls and goats can never satisfy the wrath of the eternal righteous God against guilty sinners like us. That's why the priests had to offer sacrifices not only for the people but for themselves, because it, 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 it was an ongoing sacrifice. But we have one sacrifice, and those of you who've come out of a Catholic tradition know how critical it is that you grasp that one sacrifice for all eternity, never to be repeated. Well, those are wonderful excerpts, I think, from the Dutch Reformed tradition. Top of page 9, we don't need to necessarily go through this, but this is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 1647. But just a couple of, uh, of quotes, one by Kevin DeYoung that, that I think is very helpful. I would encourage you to read this, by the way, the, the Westminster Confession, because it, it describes what the humiliation of Christ was all about, his taking on human flesh, being born in a low estate, etc. But Kevin DeYoung, we must always remember that union with Christ is possible because of the Son's descent to earth, not because of our ascent into heaven. Every blessing that we have, brothers and sisters, is because we are in Christ, right? You understand that? 
our union with Christ. That's what Kevin DeYoung is talking about, is every spiritual blessing that we have is because we are in Christ. That's our identity, that's our position, that's our blessed state. The basis of our union with Christ is Christ's union with us in the Incarnation. That, could, that should cause you to say, thank you, God Almighty, for giving us your beloved Son and for Jesus in taking on human flesh to do all that you did for us. Every spiritual blessing that we have is because he chose in obedience to the Father's plan in all eternity to take on human flesh and to do what only God could do and what only a man could do, what only the God-man could do and did. He became one with us so that we might become one with him. In Errol Hulse, the remission of sin proceeds from the passive obedience of Christ. We mentioned this earlier. This is his cross work. His offering up of himself is a propitiation for sin. Propitiation is the full satisfaction of the wrath of God. It's, it's the, the wrath of God being poured out and satisfied. Christ's active obedience, that's the, the law-keeping, the perfect obedience of the Son, provides the righteousness which constitutes the believer righteous. Both of those are indispensable. We, we, we must affirm double imputation, the imputation of our sins to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us if we're, we're going to understand things biblically. It is human righteousness. The incarnation was essential. As a man, he lived out righteousness for us throughout his life on earth. That's why the ascetic heresy is, just, is literally that. If God did not take on human flesh, if it was only an appearance of human flesh, then what he did on the cross would not have been efficacious. And his life would have been mythological in nature because it would not have achieved righteousness before God, perfect keeping of the law. Only literally taking on human flesh, as Paul says in Philippians 2, taking on the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, only that could achieve what it is that God requires that we be right with him. And every one of us who are in Christ owe our eternal souls to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need, if we meditate upon these, these wonderful things. Well, just for your own blessing, I've reproduced for you some of these other historic confessions. The Belgic Confession, again, that comes from the Dutch Reformed tradition. Two really carefully written uh, paragraphs on the Incarnation. And what happens here in, in this uh, chapter 18 of the Belgic Confession is the Belgic Confession literally goes through those passages of Scripture that delineate the, the, the tribe and the family, the, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very detailed. And so for us to say that Jesus took on human flesh is true, but the, the author of the, of the Belgic Confession wanted us to know where would we go in Scripture to support that? How, how would we, and when we affirm these things, where do we go? And that's why there's this litany of, of Scripture passages below. Every single one of these statements is buttressed by a direct reference to the Scripture. And when we want to understand this union of two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, again, there's a, a, a chapter 19 in the Belgic Confession that deals specifically with that. Well, time escapes us once again, but if anything, I, I hope that as we consider the absolutely eternally monumental implications of the Incarnation, that we would say with J.I. Packer that the, the more you think about it, and this is a quotation on the first page, the more staggering it gets. 
and, I, and, I, and all week long as I've put this together and, and, and thought about this, it just continues to stagger my mind and my heart, and it fuels praise for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what a doctrine, that's what a study of Christology should do. The Father is seeking those to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So what that means is we worship Him spiritually with, with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. We love Him. But we need to, to worship God with, with truth. We need, to, we need to have content in, in, in our worship. And that's why we go through these precious doctrines. And I can't think of a doctrine that is more precious than the doctrine of Christ, the one who gave himself for us, the one who lived for us, the one who reigns for us, the one who intercedes for us. Those are things that we'll talk about, Lord willing, as time unfolds. Father, thank you once again for the opportunity just to touch even in an introductory fashion on the Incarnation and the implications of the Incarnation and, and what we owe to you, O oh God, our Father, and to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to our Holy Spirit. Um, thank you, Triune God, for the Incarnation and for what that, that means for us that it would accomplish your saving purposes in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>